Hello, this is Jay from Jay's Politics Podcast. You're listening to the Podcast 99 Internet Radio Network on podcast99.org. Buy with Rob is your best choice when purchasing your new home in the Puget Sound area. Call 360-710-9425 today and get started on the best home buying experience you will ever have. Go to buywithrob.com today. Hello? Podcasts are verbal narcissism for ugly journalists. Hello? Can I talk to Mr. David? Dave Bowman? Approach and identify. Hello? In the summer of 1787, 55 men would gather in the city of Philadelphia. They were tasked with fixing the government of the United States. Over the next four months, they would debate, discuss, argue, and refine the first document of its kind in all of history, an attempt to show that men can rule themselves by law. This is the story of those men and those times. This is Constitution Thursday, a time we set aside to read, discuss, study, debate, and learn about the Constitution of the United States, what it meant when it was written, why it was written that way, what it means now, and how it affects our lives each and every day. Here's how you can participate. The text machine is area code 209-565-DAVE. That's 565-3283. The email address is dave at thedavebowmanshow.com. And on the web and social media, just search for Constitution Thursday. Man, battle stations, missile. Chief of Watch, sign the general alarm. From the Buy With Rob studio, located in beautiful Silverdale, Washington, this is the Dave Bowman Show. Now, here is your submarine-qualified, well-coffeed, stuffy, elitist history buff host, Dave Bowman. Well, good morning, good evening, or good afternoon, wherever you are, whatever you do. A lot of things happening in the world today. Most of them are far beyond our control, you might say. So that's why on Thursdays, we set those things aside and look at the Constitution of the United States. Talk about... What it meant, what it means, what it meant, what it, how it was written, why it was written that way, and how it affects our lives today. We call it Constitution Thursday, and yes, I know it's Friday. But for those of you who were with us yesterday or paying attention, we didn't do Constitution Thursday on Thursday. We did catch up Friday on Friday because I wasn't ready for a lot of reasons. And so today is Constitution Thursday on a Friday. <laughs> Is it really that hard to... Is it, it's not that hard of a concept, right? It really isn't. I don't think so. Uh, time was when I would get emails from people griping about that. Don't have to worry about that stuff anymore. Eloqui Calizio, greatest enemy of knowledge is not ignorance. It is, in fact, the illusion of knowledge. So, thanks for... Uh, Thanks for allowing me the, the extra 24 hours. I don't know that it helped all that much, but uh, at the end of the day, it gave me more time to think about some things and put together some some stuff for the uh, for the show this morning that I didn't have time to do yesterday, and that's, I guess, what, uh, what really matters. One of the things we like to do on Constitution Thursday is occasionally we talk about concepts, not necessarily verbiage within the Constitution, but concepts that we're all familiar with because they're words that we throw out there. They're words that we understand, words that we know. But sometimes I'm not sure that we really grasp how they um, how they function together. So a couple of the concepts that we want to look at today, uh, separation of powers is something that we're all familiar with. Uh, Cato, whose uh, third letter came out this week, was very concerned about the separation of powers uh, within the Constitution, as, as it was proposed in 1787, he was concerned about the fact that he didn't think it was strong enough. He didn't think that separation was enough. And the experience that they had had with uh, colonial government and English government uh, caused him to be concerned about the fact that there was just still too much power concentrated in in specific areas. Uh, there was deep concern about the presidency. Remember, the presidency was something that had never been done before. It had never happened before. There was nothing. The only analogous position that they were even there was anywhere in the world was prime minister. And even a prime minister is, well, to quote the uh, to quote the famous Jim Hacker, uh, it was um, 
it's just a, it, you're, you're just the leader by consent. You don't really get to make any decisions. And that's one of the things that he was concerned about. Cato was concerned that the presidency, however, he could look forward in time and do his crystal ball there and see a time where if we weren't really careful, the presidency could become the, the holder of, of extreme power. And, and maybe even Congress could do this. And there was great concern about the judiciary. Uh, the the idea that the judiciary could start making laws, even though it wasn't supposed to be able to. I mean, these were the arguments that were being made by the Anti-Federalists in 1787 and 1788. This is not, you know, something new. This These arguments have been made from day one. And you have to, you would have to conclude that there was some validity to some of those arguments along the way. Recently, in the last week, uh, the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court issued a stay for a trial that was about to begin in the Oregon District Court, Ninth Circuit, Oregon District. The The trial has been uh, on the hot burner for the better part of two years, three years probably. It is a It is a very controversial issue, and it is an issue that... Well, it's got a lot of people concerned. In fact, two administrations, one Democrat, one Republican, have both argued to the United States Supreme Court that this lawsuit has no place in the court system. It is, um, it's not just frivolous, it violates the Constitution's ideas of separations of power. So, naturally, there were arguments about whether or not the case should have been heard. The case, in case you're wondering, is Giuliani versus U.S., Giuliana versus U.S. And the upshot of the case is that 20 young people, and I'm doing the air quote thing here because um, when you start looking at this case, you realize very quickly that the young people themselves had very little to do with the actual uh, bringing of the case. The case was brought by an activist attorney and encouraged by the grandparents of one of the of the plaintiffs in the case these 20 young people allege that the government of the United States is violating their civil rights by not pursuing policies to end or combat or mitigate global climate change that's the gist of the argument now if you're paying attention, you, you can already, you kind of go, wait, um, that's problematic in a lot of ways. Uh, there's, there's, uh, there's some issues here with this that are, you know, hard to explain. But the, the upshot of the whole thing is a law case, a lawsuit to do this? Well, there are those who feel that, the political system has failed to the point where the only methodology they have left to them is to sue in court. Now, this is nothing new, by the way. This, 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 is, not a, this is not a new idea that the legislation, uh, the government's policies are, are not acceptable to me, and so I will pursue this in the courts to force the government to take a path which I approve of. The problem comes in that, of course, these policies are going to be controversial at best, problematic at worst, and there's no definitive evidence that these policies would even work in the first place to accomplish the purpose that the people who have brought the lawsuit have have made. There's a lot of um there's a lot of uh ideology here involved with this, but it also brings up the idea of the separation of powers in that the courts are not supposed to be in the business of setting policy. That is a political decision to be made via the legislative branch and the executive branch, not the judicial. But, as I said, this is something that's gone on for a long time. And so the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, after the Oregon District Court judge, uh, who, by the way, this, this particular judge is... Um, well, she's making a name for herself. So this, this is the same judge that uh, that, that handled the, the Bundy-Hammond thing and some other major cases as well. She seems to she seems to keep 
putting herself in the middle of all this kind of stuff. At any rate, it happens to be the same judge. She ruled that the case had merit and that it could go forward to trial. The Obama administration at the time objected to that strenuously. They got a stay from the uh, the Supreme Court, went back to the Ninth Circuit, went back to the district. The, the Ninth Circuit Court then ruled that, yeah, this could go forward. So it was allowed to go forward. And now the Trump administration the other day filed a 103-page argument that this particular case is problematic and does not belong in the court system. Chief Justice Roberts granted the stay. And as of right now, it is unclear whether the case will will go forward or not. It's, you could argue that from the legality of it well, all you want. But clearly this idea of separation of powers comes into play because you have a situation here where the, where the courts are essentially creating legislatively rules that are then used to guide government policy, which is not the way this is supposed to work. It's just not. Then you have the second issue that we'll get into a little bit later. As I said, this has happened before. In uh, 1954, the high court ruled nine to nothing. Some of you are old enough to remember this. I am not, but I've read extensively about it. In a very fascinating case, uh, Brown versus Board of Education, uh, they ruled that the schools had to be had to be desegregated. They had to be equal. The separate by equal doctrine was not acceptable. This is a, a fascinating <laughs> newspaper to me, the Daily Iowan from that from the day after that uh, in May of 1954, the high court rules nine to nothing. And oddly enough, the original ruling, the original lineup on this was eight to one. And the, the chief justice at the time wanted and felt that it was politically expedient and necessary for the country to have a unanimous decision. And so they spent weeks trying to convince one of the other associate justices to change his vote. They do that, by the way. And he would not, he would not, he would not. And so they were kind of at a a loggerheads. They didn't want to release the decision until it was nine to nothing, but they couldn't get this guy to change his mind. So depending on how you look at it, some people would, I'm sure, tell me that God did it, but I don't believe that. At, At any rate, the justice, the associate justice died. And they had to replace him. So they replaced him. And he immediately got on board with the 9-0 ruling. And so they issued the 9-0 ruling that uh, that segregation in schooling was unconstitutional and, and violated the civil rights of African Americans. I love this headline on the left, Southerners voice anger at court rule. It's important to remember that not everybody agreed with those things. Ten years later, we got the civil rights bill passed by Congress. Um, again, we could spend a lot of time talking about the politics of it. That's not important. Uh, President Johnson, a Southerner, signed it, even though many Southerners opposed it. Uh, say what you will about LBJ and who hasn't. LBJ was a very big supporter of equal rights for for African Americans. He He believed very firmly that it was unconstitutional, that it was a violation of civil rights, for people to be told that they couldn't do things solely because of the color of their skin. Our country went through a an incredibly difficult time, an incredibly remarkable time in dealing with this, this idea that civil rights were extended to African Americans in the United States of America. It's intriguing to me because I grew up at the very, kind of at the tail end of it. I was born in 63. The Civil Rights Act was signed in 64. But I was born 18 days after the march on Washington. And I grew up in a very Southern family. A family that, to this day, still holds some of those feelings. I don't know about the beliefs, but they certainly hold some of those feelings. And it it, it is kind of a remarkable thing because we, in today's world, we sort of take those things for granted. We don't, I don't know anybody seriously. I know that there are people who do feel this way, but I do not know them. And I would suspect that most of you don't know any of them either who still hold on to those racial beliefs. Most of us accept the idea that civil rights extend in the area of race and that all the races are equal and should be treated as such. 
It was not an easy process to get to that point by any stretch of the imagination. In the 1970s, along came this idea that the schools were still not equal in racial components or in quality. And so it started in Boston. It actually, it actually started in the South. It's, it's kind of a misnomer that it started in Boston, but that's where it really is, is famous for it. There were a series of court rulings that allowed the government to use busing to move kids around to different schools so as to equally distribute them. And theoretically, at least, theoretically, this would improve the schools. In Boston, this was met with great resistance. Uh, you can see they had to have police escorts for the buses. There was a great deal of uh, of argument and throwing of things, as I recall, a lot of yelling and and uh, really a lot of anger over that. And at the time, I was in the fifth grade at Dow Elementary School in Denver, Colorado, Francis R. Dow School. Every morning at precisely eight o'clock, I, along with four other guys, would walk out there to that flagpole kind of off center in the middle there, and we would raise the American flag. We were the flag team. And uh, every afternoon at the end of the school day, we would march out, lower it down, and, and fold it. I was in the band. The, we had a pretty good uh, recess football game going there on the other side of the building. It was a great school. It was probably my favorite year of school. Right above the, uh, the sign there where it says, Enroll Your Child, was my fifth grade classroom. That was uh, Mr., Mr. Dodge's class. Uh, ben always asked me, what was your favorite year of school? And I always tell him, fifth grade. Uh, Mr. Dodge was my art and science teacher. He was, he is the man that introduced me to computers. He got, we, we had to have special permission from our parents to not go to lunch in the cafeteria. We could have lunch in the classroom and we would have lunch with Luigi, which was the name of the computer. And we learned to code in Octal. And really, I mean, it was just basic programming, but it was the, it was the start of an, of a lifelong journey and uh, really a fascinating class, really a fascinating time at that school. But this school as many were in those days, was basically, well, I mean, let's just be realistic. It was about 98% white kids like me. Other schools around Denver did not have some of the advantages that we had, including a school by the name of Eagleton Elementary, which you can see here. Eagleton Elementary had a lot of things going for it. Uh, number one, it was about 98% Hispanic because it was in downtown Denver. It was literally about a half a mile from the old Mile High Stadium in downtown Denver. Um, and it was ancient. It was opened in 1888. And that is what it looked like the day that I stepped foot into that building in, uh, in, in, in fifth grade. I don't remember the year. I could probably look it up and tell you, but it was in the early 1970s. And this building was absolutely wonderful. I mean, it was not only... Not only did half the day I have Mr. Dodge's science and art class, but then the other half of the day I ended up in this building, which was well over, well, close to 100 years old at that point. It had steam radiators that hissed and heated everything. It was just a wonderful little building. And on the backside, which you can't see here, and I was not able to find any photographs of, is a huge playground. And then to the back right-hand side of the building there, they were building the brand-new Eagleton School that was going to open just after the new year. So we got to spend half the year in this building and then half the year breaking in the new building. And this building was just, I, to this day, it's still one of my favorite places. Um, learned songs there. The, uh, most of you are familiar with the, uh, the cat song, Senor Don Gato. That's where I learned it sitting in that building all those years ago. So it was, it was an, it was an incredible experience for me, but what I remember about it was my parents being very upset and other parents, my friend's parents being very upset because we were being bused to this school from away from the school that was near our homes. And, and it was a good, probably 10 miles away. I mean, it wasn't close. It was, it was a good ride down there and parents were very upset. And I remember there was a class one day and Mr. Dodge was talking about it and he was trying to explain to us why this was happening. And, and I, you know, we were fifth graders. The, the geopolitics of civil rights is not something that really resonates with us in the broad spectrum of things. What resonated with me was this incredible old building 
the, even back then, I loved old things. And after we moved into the new building a few months later, we were actually a allowed – follow this, folks. We were actually allowed as fifth graders to throw rocks at the windows in the old building because we were tearing it down. So we were out on that same playground, which is behind that building, and, and the teachers actually let us throw rocks at, at the windows in the old building, and we could break windows, and it was awesome. It was, it was so much fun. It really was. It was such a great year. We got to meet Pat Haggerty. I know. Who, who's Pat Haggerty? Pat Haggerty was an NFL referee for many, many years. He refereed Super Bowls back in the 70s and 80s. Um, and he, was, um, he was the referee of referees before there were the people now. And, and he was from Denver, and so he would come to the schools on career day and talk to us and stuff. And it was just it was a great experience for me personally. But from a geopolitical standpoint, there was a whole lot of rock throwing, metaphorical and otherwise, and people really still upset about this idea that we would force people to go somewhere else at the insistence of the court, because the court had decided that somebody had a civil right to not have to go to a school that was completely white or completely brown, or in other parts of the country, completely black or completely white. This idea that the court was taking action was problematic because now the court was interfering in what was clearly a political, for the most part, what should have been a political function. Legislators should have been looking at things going, okay, we need to, we need to put laws and rules in place that will make the schools in accordance with Brown v. Board of Education and the Civil Rights Act of 1964. We should be making this work. But for whatever reason, and there were lots of reasons, folks, there were a lot of reasons why it wasn't happening. Whether that reason was a natural tendency of people to seek out their own, so certain enclaves of cities would become known as certain kinds of areas. Italian people like to live with Italian people. Jewish people like to live with Jewish people. Jamaicans like to live with Jamaican people. And so they would tend to clump in those areas. And, of course, then the schools, there is some natural element to that. We all like to be around people that we're comfortable with. It's just a reality. It's not racism. It's nature. It's the way people are. But rules could have been maintained by legislative process to do that. But for whatever reason, those rules weren't working. And some rules were already in effect. In fact, the Deep South had been under this this busing idea for years. You didn't know that, did you? Long before Boston or Denver ever were required by the courts to bus kids, the South had been required to bus kids for years. Until... They realize that why do we have to bus kids if they don't have to do it in Boston or New York or Colorado? It's not fair. One, uh, one governor of a southern state, Georgia, pointed out the fact that we're being, we're being forced to do this, but the North is getting away with it. And he would parlay the popularity that he gained by standing up for civil rights into a presidential run, and he would eventually become president of the United States, Jimmy Carter. The... The idea here is somewhat fluid. There are some considerations here about what is a civil right that will naturally make us confused. It will naturally concern us. I asked the question on the Facebook page yesterday, after the show I got done yesterday, and so I asked the page, without Googling it, without looking up the definition, what is a civil right? And it was kind of... Interesting to watch the various replies roll in and see what people were thinking. I'm not looking for a legal description of it because I think a legal description of it is a little bit, like I said, fluid. It's a little bit, it can be a little bit confusing, particularly to those of us that are not necessarily dealing with this every single day of our lives. We understand the concept of civil rights and we apply it. We say, okay, you can't discriminate on the basis of race. You can't discriminate on the basis of sex, creed, those kinds of things. And, and we accept that intellectually, I think we do. Now, again, emotionally, we may not. Emotionally, everybody seeks their own level. Everybody seeks what, what's comfortable to them. Even, even the most ardent and passionate of liberals st- 
still tend to do that. That's it's reality. So, you know, it, 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 there comes this moment of, okay, we accept these ideas, but do we implement them? And how do we implement them? And even within our constitution, with its separation of powers and that sort of things, even within that, we still have this idea of civil rights amendments. 13th Amendment abolishes slavery and, and, and involuntary servitude. 14th Amendment and its, its requirements. The 15th Amendment, the, you know, so forth and so on. The 18th, no, not the 18th, 19th Amendment and the 26th Amendments. And if you notice at the end of all of those amendments, what does it say? says something very specific at the end of those amendments. Congress shall have the power to pass legislation to enact this amendment, to, to enforce this amendment, to make this so. We have said this is now a right. But just saying something is a right, you know, doesn't necessarily make it so, does it? Doesn't necessarily cause people to line up and go, hey, yeah, I can't, uh, I can't wait to, I can't wait to, to, to embrace that. You know, you end up with a situation like you had in Boston with people throwing rocks at, at buses and police officers and politicians and so forth and so on. It's not always the easiest thing to do. But then you got to go back to, you know, where we started. And you got to look at the difference, I guess, between civil rights and natural rights. The Declaration of Independence is about natural rights, folks. Rights endowed by your creator. You don't find those words in the Constitution of the United States. It's a different thing, at least from a language perspective. Now, you could make the argument that some of these rights that we call civil rights are, in fact, natural rights. And, in fact, that's not a bad argument to make by any stretch of the imagination. But it didn't necessarily work out that way all the way back at the beginning. Got to take a break. It's half past. It's the Dave Bowman Show. Constitution Thursday on a Friday. Stay with us. We'll be back right after this. This is the Podcast 99 Internet Radio Network. Hey, this is YD from the Ale Evangelist Show, and you're listening to the Podcast 99 Internet Radio Network. are listening to the Dave Bowman show on the podcast 99 internet radio network. Yeah, that is my backyard live. Love those trees. If I could pan that camera to the right, you would see it. I have a red tree, a yellow tree and a purple tree right now. And it's just really cool. <laughs> I love my backyard. I really do. Welcome back. It is Constitution Thursday on a Friday. It's the Dave Bowman Show right here on the Podcast 99 Internet Radio Network. You can text me, area code 209-565-DAVE. It's 565-3283. The email is dave at thedavebowmanshow.com. And, of course, we're on the web. It's the Dave Bowman Show on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, and, of course, thedavebowmanshow.com, as well as podcast99.org. So we're talking about this idea of civil rights. What are they? Why do they matter? And of course, this is all in the context of the the Juliana versus the United States lawsuit being uh, put on hold by the United States Supreme Court because there are deep concerns about whether or not this lawsuit violates the separation of powers. And there's a bigger question in all of this that we got to get to as well. We talked about the the Declaration of Independence. The Declaration of Independence declares that we have natural rights endowed by our creator, right? That's one of the functional ideas that the Declaration of Independence gives us. We hold these truths to be self-evidence that 
All men are created equal, and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, among these life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The, the idea of natural rights, and some people uh, went to this when we were talking about it on the, on the Facebook page. Uh, natural rights are those rights which nature, or nature's God, depending on which one you want to go with, have endowed us with. It doesn't really matter whether, whether you believe in God or not. The, the idea that because you are human, you have certain rights, or because you are a certain thing, you have certain rights, is a de facto natural right. But there are some, there are some drawbacks here that, that require this. Number one drawback, number one thing here, is that it requires some form of recognition of that nature or nature's God. In other words... If the government instituted by man does not recognize those rights, then how can you say they exist? I mean, you can. This is, again, this is a very fluid thing here. You can argue that they exist, but if they are functionally not recognized, do they really exist? This is the, the idea here that even though we say in the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal, we didn't necessarily really believe that as a society, did we? We didn't necessarily practice that. We, it took time before we were able to use our Constitution, not our Declaration of Independence, to bring that recognition of those natural rights into process via the civil procedure. Hmm. Natural rights also are perceived generally, and I believe we had a president that said this, as negative liberties. Now, there's a reason why he said that, and of course, most conservatives went bananas when he did, but the fact is that they are kind of, in a way, I, I don't like the term negative liberties, but they are negative things. In, in Judaism, we have the 613 commandments of the Torah, some of which are positives and some of which are negatives, thou shalt or thou shalt nots. And you can look at the thou shalt nots as a negative liberty, is what President Obama would have called them. That's not, the the, the difficulty that I have with what he said was it's not a bad thing. But he wasn't making himself, in my view, completely clear, and he didn't finish the thought, and that's part of the problem. That's why it's perceived as as a bad thing to have said. On the other hand, civil rights are a little bit similar and a little bit different. Number one, they are not seen as necessarily being having been ordained by nature or God. Now, again, you can argue that they should have been. Okay? Don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. All men are created equal should have meant all men were created equal. But to the society in that era, and don't give me that crap about, well, no, it wouldn't have. You would have done it the same way because that's the society that they lived in. They did not see those rights as ordained by nature or God on certain people. Okay? So this is, when we get into the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Brown v. Board of Education, and even to a degree busing, we see rights here to equality, rights to uh, schooling, rights to those sorts of things that were not necessarily ordained by nature or God. You follow what I'm saying there? Should they have been? Probably, yes, but that's a different argument, and it didn't happen that way. They also require some form of recognition. We have to be able to say, okay, yes, we now recognize this. In our particular case, we pass constitutional amendments that recognize that these rights existed. Again, we had to tag that thing in the end of there about Congress shall have the power to enact legislation to enforce this, and that took time but it initially required some form of recognition. And they are perceived as positive liberties, thou shalt, as it were. You follow? You kind of see the difference here between these two. Now, again, there is great fluidity here. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. There is great fluidity. Yes, equal rights based on race should have been conceived at the beginning. You're not going to get any argument from that, but it was not. And it required a process by which that right was recognized and enacted by, by legislation to make it happen. It was not seen 
amongst the natural rights at the time. Now, again, if you were to look at it today and say, is this a natural right? You probably would. And that's fine. In, in my view, whenever someone says, well, I have a civil right, the way I analyze that is to analyze whether or not that civil right that they're claiming can be construed as a natural right. Is there a natural right to whatever it is that is being explained or requested or insisted upon or sued over? Is there a natural right to a climate? Yes or no? Natural rights, by definition, restrict government actions. They are negative liberties, uh, as President Obama portrayed them. Again, I don't like that phraseology, but they are negatives. The government cannot do certain things. They cannot restrict certain things. Congress shall pass no law restricting, impeding, impinging the freedom of speech, the freedom of press, the right to assemble. They, they shall, you, you, your rights to life, liberty, or I'm sorry, houses, homes, possessions, papers, effects, uh, the government shall not do shall not violate those except upon warrants with probable cause you have a right to a trial you have a right to a jury you have a right not to quarter troops and to keep and bear arms the government cannot pass laws then to restrict natural rights on the other hand civil rights generally speaking require some form of government action a thou shalt do something and that shalt usually compels action on part of people, the citizenry of the country. You will put your child on this bus and send them to another school. You will not discriminate on the basis of race or religion or color or creed or sex. You will do certain things. You will bake a cake. You will do these things that we have decided are, in fact, civil rights, and therefore you will carry them out. But there comes an issue, doesn't there? How far can a civil right go towards impinging or impeding or blocking a natural right? So if a civil right compels a person, a citizen, to give up a natural right, is that... Is that a valid use of government power, since the government was restricted from doing those things in the first place? You follow the argument here? Which is where we hit the problem with Juliana versus the United States. Not only is the, the, there's the first idea, which is that it's a violation of the separation of powers. And this is the argument that both the Obama administration and the Trump administration have made. So you can't say, Oh, that's a Republican issue or that's a Democrat issue. Both administrations made the same argument, which is that we have a political process to decide these things. We have a political process by which we elect people who then make the policies that the people want implemented. And if the the lawsuit is permitted to go forward, and if the lawsuit is successful, which I have to believe it would not be, but that's a that's an argument for another day. But if it were successful then the idea here would become that the, that the government could be sued at any point for anything, for any policy that someone doesn't like claiming a civil right under this and force the government to act on what is probably a minority's wishes for how it should behave as opposed to the political process of electing representatives who implement policy. That would be a violation of the separation of powers. It's certainly exactly what Cato was afraid of when he was talking about the idea that the judiciary could very well take over this thing if you're not careful. And he saw that in 1788. The danger of this is unacceptable. I mean, it really is. It would be a a death knell to a republic if such a thing even still exists. It would be the final nail in the coffin. The idea that a lawsuit then determines what what happens is is problematic across the board. It's part of the problem with what happened with busing. It's part of why busing didn't really work at the end of the day, because uh, much like prohibition, you can't really legislate people into liking each other. You, you, you can pass a law that says they have to do certain things, but you can't make them like one another. It, in the same way, it's the same thing with uh, you, you run into in today's world where you know, again, 
is a, does a civil right violate a natural right? If I'm told that the person standing in front of me has self-identified as something that they are clearly not, it doesn't affect me until they tell me that I am required by law to believe their fantasy. Well, then my natural rights are being violated because now government is violating my conscience. They're violating my freedom of expression and speech to say that that is not true. That person is clearly not what they are identifying them as. And you can't make me say that. You can't make me believe it. That's for damn sure. So is that civil right? Or is it just, you know, down the stream? That's the problem with all of this thing. The second problem comes in, of course, I mean, you have the separation of powers issue, but now you have the issue of, is there such a thing as a civil right to a climate which these people have decided is the natural climate that they want? See, therein lies the problem, doesn't it? Over four and a half billion years of history, the climate of Earth has changed numerous times. In fact, uh, you could argue that global warming is why human beings are here in the first place. 25,000 years ago, where I'm sitting right now, was under a mile-thick sheet of ice, and it was uninhabitable. Global warming came along, and I'm able to live here now. Again, climate changes. And I think you would be considered irrational to, to, if you were to go down the street of somehow or another, by passing a rule in a court, I can dictate policies that will then force the government to to make or force or or pursue a climate of which I approve. I happen to like cold weather. I happen to like it very cold. I frankly if I if I were able to do this, I would want snow everywhere. Snow even in Florida. 4 feet of snow is the perfect amount in my world. It's what I like. I like the temperature to be right around 28 degrees with no wind. And snow, that's the climate I like. Not weather, that's the climate. That's the way I want it, 24-7. So why is my desire to have that climate any necessarily any different from somebody else who thinks that they want a climate of some other? Why can't I compel the government to pursue policies? Because we all know they can we all know they can control the weather, right? We all know DARPA's doing that. Why can't I do that? Why is it only these 20 people that get to do it? At the end of the day, what will these policies that they want pursued do in the, in the, view, in the vein of civil rights versus natural rights? If the civil rights that they are pursuing, that they want specific policies, which then, as we've talked about on numerous occasions over the past, I don't know, 10 years, will those civil rights that are being enforced now by judicial action, not legislative action, require the surrendering of natural rights on behalf of others. And if they do, are they really civil rights? Or are they just tyranny? Throughout history, what makes us somewhat unique is that we can have these kinds of arguments. In, in, in so many cultures and so many societies and, his, and nations in history, these kinds of arguments did not exist. The government that went into place simply decided what natural rights they were going to recognize. And again, just like us, they didn't recognize all of those natural rights. And they began to change the civil rights so that some natural rights of people who otherwise should have had them would have, were, were denied. And you don't have to look very far back in history to find those places. You really don't. You can find them all around the world. You can find them in North Korea today. Do you think that the natural rights that we, that we recognize and, and share here are in place in North Korea? Do you think they're in place in China? What about, I don't know, some of these Central African Democratic Republics, which are, you know, that's a key, that's a, a, a phrase that means, you know, communist dictatorship. The Soviet Union, the, the Soviet satellite countries of the 1960s and 70s, and so forth and so on, all the way back. Of course, you can go through the fascist governments of the 1930s, but you can go back to the crown 
governments, the monarchical governments before that. Go all the way back, really, if you want to, to the very beginning of humanity and Hammurabi and his code, which sought to outline some of the natural rights that he recognized and some that he did not. Even Socrates, yes, Socrates, the great Greek philosopher, was willing to discuss the idea that while natural rights are important, some civil rights were more important to him. Do you know what one of them was? He thought that slave owners should treat their slaves well, but that it was natural, natural that some men should be slaves to others. Socrates said that. You don't have to look far in history to find where natural rights, as we talked about being recognized, weren't necessarily always recognized the way we recognize them. Civil rights allowed us to recognize that certain natural rights that we might have forgotten about, maybe we overlooked, maybe we didn't think about, maybe society changed, allowed us to change those rights into basically natural rights now that required our recognition as well. And in some cases, most cases, they required, as I said, some kind of government action, some kind of law, some kind of force to do that. But once those civil rights began to violate natural rights, now you've got a problem. Now you've crossed over into something that was not intended to be and creates problems. This lawsuit, Juliana versus United States, not only violates the separation of powers, and that's going to be, that's going to be where it really gets ripped out, but the potential is that if the bench, the court, starts dictating policies, starts dictating political and societal policies to Congress, you will do this, you will do this, you will pursue this policy, you will spend this money, what happens to everybody else's liberties that doesn't necessarily agree with that? And whether you believe in anthropogenic global warming or not is irrelevant. You accept, you must accept this singular fact, which is that many people do not. And there is no definitive evidence either way. There is, no, there is no writing on the wall saying this is the way it is. QED, end of discussion, that's it. There is legitimate debate in both directions. And so, if Congress is compelled by a court to say, well, we have to pursue this in this direction, what happens to other people's natural rights? Therein lies the problem with this case, and therein lies the problem with it from a constitutional standpoint, which is that separation of powers, and this idea that government has both negative rights that it cannot do, it cannot restrict certain things, and at the same time, that it does do some positive things. And I think we all acknowledge that for the most part, those positive things are, are, are important and should have been considered natural rights to begin with. But the beauty of our system is that even though they weren't, we were eventually able to mature as a society to the point where they could be. I think that's important. I think that's something that's badly overlooked by most people. It's, it, it, you know, it's one of those things where we don't, we don't talk about the fact that mm, this allowed us to make those changes and maybe we should give that its due consideration and its due concern. It's just some things to think about. On a Constitution Thursday on a Friday, right? I don't know. It's supposed to rain all weekend here. People were sending me messages last night. Dave, go look at the moon. Go look at the moon. Go look at the moon. I'm like, it's raining. What? That's one of the things I like about living in the 21st century is that, you know, there was a time in my life when you had to be on the phone with somebody four or five, 600 miles away. And it was expensive because you had to pay, you had to pay long distance calls. So you didn't tune in to do it. And, or you could send them a letter. Now it's like, I'm talking to people in the next room. <laughs> it's kind of, kind of weird, kind of unique, kind of, kind of cool, but there you go. So that, uh, that'll put the wraps on constitution Thursday. Tomorrow is my baby sister's birthday. So she will be 45. Wow. 45 years ago tomorrow, I was playing Little League football. I, yes, I'm making my baby sister's birthday about me. I played the game of my life 45 years ago. I threw the block that sprung Tucker for the touchdown. I made a great run. 
it was it was a great game. It's isn't that sad? I feel like Al Bundy, man. Forty five years ago, I did something great in a junior league football game, and then we got home and my sister was born, and that started an adventure that has gone on for forty five years of sometimes really great days and sometimes not so good days. But happy birthday, Deanna! By the way, I. I learned last year that I've been misspelling her name for 44 years. That's sad. My own sister's name. I, I learned yesterday uh, yesterday that I've been mispronouncing Nebuchadnezzar for, you know, the same amount of time. So no big surprise there, right? Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. I got to get going. Take the time right now. Tell the people that matter in your life you love them very much. You'd miss them if they weren't there. So don't pass up those opportunities. Don't want to have that regret. Plausibly Live, I'm Dave Bowman, and this is my show. The Dave Bowman Show right here on the podcast, 99 Internet Radio Network. We're here every Monday through Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific and on demand at the DaveBowmanShow.com on iTunes as well as at Podcast99.org. Stay tuned on the radio side. Tim Price is coming up next, and we will see you on Monday, everybody. It's not a holiday, right? No, it's not. We'll see you on Monday for a brand new episode of The Dave Bowman Show. Have a great weekend, everybody. Show is a Slippery Fish Entertainment production for the Podcast 99 Internet Radio Network. For more information or to complain about how the show offended you, the text or voicemail number is 209-565-DAVE. For more information about the show, log on to the DaveBowmanShow.com. Hey, I'm going to go do something productive. I'm going to go watch television.